you would please and open them to Acts, the 17th chapter. Tonight we're continuing our Sunday evening series on uh, messages that I hope will be an encouragement to all the members of Brean Baptist Church that we would go out and share our faith with others. And we're, we're blessed that our Sunday morning series in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13 is sort of overlapping uh, what we're talking about now because in that series we're, we're speaking about the kingdom parables that Jesus gave his disciples. And one of the parables that he gave them was an explanation of how that his kingdom would grow. And its growth comes through the preaching of the gospel of Christ from people like you and me sharing our faith with other people. Now, what Jesus did not tell his disciples was that there are some people that are off limits, some people that you don't talk to about the gospel, because the plain truth of the matter is everybody needs the gospel of Christ. Now, the main point of the message tonight, and we've talked about several different things in the previous messages, but my main point tonight is just to show you different types of people that really need the gospel. That we live around a lot of people with a lot of different ideas in their faith or lack of faith, whatever it might be. And we look at some of the things that people think about and, and believe this evening in this sermon. And what I'm doing here this evening is I'm reaching back about, uh, well, back actually to before the beginning of the Matthew series. That would be a little almost four years ago. And this is a message that I preached then. Now, one of the things that I don't have the luxury of doing when you when you preach verse-by-verse messages through three different bi- books of the Bible at the same time, that every message is a new message. I mean, that's because you're going verse-by-verse, and so you don't have any choice but to make a new message every time that you go through the text. So that's happening three times a week, three new messages every week. But in this series, what I've done is uh, maybe you don't even realize it because you don't remember some of them, but I've reached back for a couple of things that I've taught in previous years, and this one is not so long ago. And so if you have a pretty good memory, then you may remember this sermon. Now, I was talking to, uh, I I think it was Gail this morning, about her grandmother, and her grandmother's 101 years old. And uh, I said, well, she's a a Roman Catholic. And I said, she wouldn't like, she she was supposed to come to church this morning. And I said, she's not, she wouldn't have liked what I had to say this morning. And Gail said, well, it really doesn't matter a whole lot because it doesn't take her long to forget. She's 101 years old. And I said, well, what's the excuse for everybody else then? Um, so maybe you, maybe you remember this sermon and may, maybe you don't. Uh, as I said, I don't get the luxury of repeating too often, but we are going to repeat one here tonight. And if you remember it, fine. And another thing that I've learned, and I'm, I'm already 25 minutes after 6, that when I go over an old sermon, I always find out there's something that needs to be added to that. And the sermons that I used to preach that were 31, 32 minutes now become 50 minutes. So I don't know. I hope that I'll get through here uh, before too long tonight. So we're looking at, uh, in the book of Acts here in chapter 17, at one of the most interesting accounts that I think there is in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul encountered people that were from all different walks of life, and all of them needed the gospel. And in this particular passage, I want to point out to you six different groups of people and five out of the six knew or thought that they were okay the way that they were and didn't need the gospel. And there's one one group that realized that something needed to be done. So this is the story of Paul's visit to the ancient city of Athens. 
We're only going to read just a part of this story, and I do encourage you, if you haven't read this entire chapter, most of you probably have, but at some time or another, just go ahead and read it all. Get the full picture here, because there's a lot of things I don't have time to talk about in the sermon tonight. But just before the text verses that we have this evening, I'd like you to look up at verses 10 and 11, because these are what we might call the life verses of Brian Baptist Church. This is where we take our name. Verse number 10, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they had received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And that's where the name Berean comes from. We believe in searching out the Scriptures, learning the truth, and so our desire is really to be good students of God's Word. Now, our text then starts at verse number 15, and so if you'll look there, after Paul left the city of Berea, he went to Athens. And verse number 15 says, And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed." Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. In the fall of 2003, We started a series in the book of Acts, went completely through the book of Acts. And I remember when we came to this particular scripture that I began to think about what it must have been like for Paul to walk into the city of Athens. I mean, Athens was simply a breathtaking sight, just magnificent architecture. There was, it was a breathtaking place. There there were massive buildings there. And I have a picture for you that you may, if you remember the sermon, you may recall this, that this is the ruins of the Parthenon in Athens on the uh, Acropolis. And this was one of the largest temples, one of the most magnificent temples of the ancient world. So Athens was really a magnificent city, but at the time of the Apostle Paul, the city was in decline. What it was was actually a symbol of a crumbling empire. And so while Paul Paul was there preaching the kingdom of God and the kingdom was just getting its start as far as the gospel preaching was concerned, he was in the beginning of the growth of a great kingdom while standing in the midst of a place that was a monument to decay, a massive decline of culture. But still, when Paul went there, it was an impressive sight because there weren't any cities in Paul's day that had the history and the architecture and the greatness of Athens. 
But the most moving thing to Paul was not the physical aspects of the city. As a tourist, you and I may want to go to a place like that and we would just say, wow, look at, look at what we have here. Look at, the, look at this architecture. But Paul's not interested in that. The thing that struck him most was here before him is a massive mission field. Here are people of all kinds of strange beliefs. They don't know about the one true living God. They're ignorant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the scripture says in verse number 16, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. And in the original language of scripture, that actually means the place was full of idols. The whole city's full of idols. One ancient writer said that it was easier to find a god than a man there. And so gods were everywhere. They lined the streets. They were on top of the buildings. They formed little islands in the middle of streets, so you have to go around them. And so they worshipped idols of every imaginable deity. And Paul saw that, and it says his heart was stirred in him. And, and that word actually means that he was aroused by this. He was indignant at it. In fact, he was irritated about it because what he saw was an abuse of God's glory. And the city was bright and vibrant. There's a lot of activity going on. It's a very interesting place, but it was in spiritual darkness. Darkness enveloped these people. And we can't help but be reminded of what Paul said in the book of Romans when he addressed this very subject. He said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkening. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things." And that is exactly what Paul found in the city of Athens. But he also found something else there. He found an altar where there was no idol. There's no statue on this pedestal because they didn't know the God that they were worshiping. They didn't know who this God was. And so in in, in an effort to cover all the bases, to make sure they haven't left out any gods at all, they make an altar to the unknown God. And it's not like this is the only altar like this that Paul found in the city because these were all over the place. They were a constant reminder that they might have left some God out. They might not have acknowledged some God. And so what they did was they didn't want to endanger themselves by leaving one out. And so Paul seized upon that opportunity to tell them the God that you don't know is the God above all gods, the God who reigns supreme, You worship him in ignorance, but I want to tell you who he is. And, of course, Paul was not speaking of another God made of stone, but he was speaking of the only one true living God, Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that there are so many religious people in Athens. As the the writer said, it's easier to find a God than a man there. So nobody's without his God of some sort, some sort of God, So he's not dealing with people that are just the pure atheists. These are very religious people, but they worship the wrong God. 
Now, the question that I'm asking tonight is, who needs the gospel? And we find as we go out that there are many people in our city that are religious. They've got something that they hold on to, some kind of faith that they have. In other words, some sort of God, but they don't really know the truth about Jesus Christ. And they're going to perish, and they'll take their gods with them. Now, tonight... I want to look at some different people that Paul encountered, and they have ranging, very ranging views of life. First, who needs the gospel? Well, we we would say, first of all, those that already have religion. Now, that's apparent to us. Now, Paul's method, he he had a method for reaching people in faraway places with the gospel. In the first century, the Jews had scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, and so just about everywhere they went, they organized synagogues. And so what Paul would do, his custom was to go first into the synagogue and preach to Jews. They already had the scriptures. They already aware of them to some. Of course, they've read them so they know about them. And, and so Paul would go to the Jews first. And in verse 17, we find that Paul followed that custom because he goes into the synagogue and engages the Jews in a discussion. These are people that are regular worshipers. These are people that attend worship services faithfully. They read the scriptures, you might say, religiously, but they really don't have any knowledge of what the scripture means. So Paul targeted them with, with, with preaching because they were very religious and they were dedicated, but they were blinded by what we might call institutional religion. So they had their traditions, they had their ceremonies, but the Spirit of God is not in their lives. They're, they're moral people. They're interested in the things of God, but it's actually their religion itself that keeps them away from the one true God. This is, they don't come to Jesus Christ. The religion stands in the way. And if I could pair the, compare those people to the religious of our time, these are people that go to church. These are people that have been baptized. They've been confirmed. They've been catechized. They have their names on church rolls, but they don't truly know who Jesus is. We talked a little bit somewhat about that in the message this morning. Just this afternoon, we went to, I'll throw this in. This is an addition to the sermon. Um, this afternoon, we went up to a restaurant to eat, a Chinese restaurant up here, and I met some folks that were sitting in the corner there, and um, we began to talk, and uh, they introduced themselves, and I introduced myself and told them I was the pastor here at Brian Baptist Church, and, and they were interested in that. They were religious people also. So this man pulled out a card, and he handed this to me, and uh, I'm not going to tell you all that it says, but on this card are two columns with a bunch of different words. They're grace, belief, faith, so on and so on, and there's two columns of words. And what he told me was that one day he was just sitting there, and all of a sudden his hand started to move. His hand started to move, and he started writing down these things, and out came these two columns of words. Well, I said, interesting, interesting, you know, And I said, I don't know what they put in this food here, but I'm going to be careful about what I'm eating. So this guy, these people, they're very religious people. They attend a church that's that's not too far from us here, and and they talk like they have the faith and all of that. And I'm going to question whether they really know Christ as their Savior or not. But it is an indication of how many wild ideas that there are out there that people believe in and they think that this is really the truth of God's word and so you find people that know these things they know the rosary you ask them about that they know that ask them about confession they've done that ask them about the mass they've memorized that they're well acquainted with all of these things but folks if you ask them if they are redeemed they don't really know anything about that 
They don't know anything about being born again. They have the outward religion, and they love that, but they've never really experienced an interchange that comes to the heart. And I've heard people say, oh, uh, I'd really like to be a Christian, and I, or I am a Christian, but that part about being born again, not too sure about that part. But that's what Jesus said, didn't he? Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And being born again is not the same as keeping sacraments. Not the same as church traditions. It's not the same as being a member of a church. You know, you, you can be listed on the, all the church rolls from here to the East Coast, and that's not going to make you closer to God. Salvation is not in the institution. It's not in the ritual. Salvation is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul met, met plenty of those people. They, they love religion more than they love God. And their minds have been blinded by all the rituals that they go through. These are people that need the gospel just as much as a pure pagan who's never heard anything at all about Jesus Christ. They don't really have an interest in God. They have a true interest in their religion. And religious people need the gospel as much as anyone else. Now, secondly, who needs the gospel? Well, also those that respect God. Now, in verse number 17, there's another class of people. You have the Jews that are in the synagogue, but it also says that there were devout persons. There are others that are called devout persons. So these aren't actually converts to Judaism. They didn't quite fit in with the Jews. They don't fit in with the pure pagans. But there are people that recognize that there is something seriously wrong in society. And so they, they believed in their God as well. They're, they're fed up with all the immorality of everything that's going on around them. They don't like all the things that are happening in that society. They're moral people, but they're not quite sure what to do about it. They know that something needs to be done. They aren't anti-religion. They just don't know what to do. And I suppose the best description that we could give of these kind of people is that they are good sinners. I mean, there, there is a, that's an oxymoron, of course. There are no good sinners. But these are people that think, and you meet a lot of them, that think they're just a little bit better than everybody else. And they're just pretty good moral people. If I could tell you the conversations that I've had with people, and, and you ask them, are you a Christian? And their answer is, I'm a pretty good person. I don't really do any really bad things, and I'm trying to be the best person that I can be. And so these are people that are into comparative analysis. And so salvation to them is that they can find somebody who's not quite as good as they are. And if you're in that category, you need the gospel. The scripture says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So God's not interested in comparative analysis. He's already determined that there's no person that meets his standard. There's only one standard that counts, and that's perfection. And how many of us know anybody that's truly perfect? Jesus said, be ye perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And so, is there anyone that can honestly say they've never broken any of God's commandments? They've never lied. They've never been prideful. They've never cursed. They've never been jealous. They've never thought a bad thought. And everything, they've always given God the glory. If you find somebody like that, maybe there's a case for them. But according to the Word of God, there isn't anybody like that. Only Jesus met all of God's laws perfectly because he's the author of those laws. He is divine. He didn't have a sinful nature. He's able to do things we can't do. And so he kept every law in order that we might have his righteousness by faith. This is what Paul wrote in Romans 3. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption 
that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, we can make those verses very simple if you have a hard time understanding them. And all it means is human goodness is never going to get anybody to heaven. Perfect, perfect life, perfect everything is the requirement. And the only perfection is Jesus Christ. So no one earns their justification. We're studying that in the book of Galatians right now. Nobody can earn it. It's given to us or imputed to us by faith so that the goodness of Christ becomes our goodness and his perfection becomes our perfection. His obedience becomes our obedience. And that's the only way we can be right with God. So who needs the gospel? Well, the pretty good people, but the not quite perfect. They need the gospel. And as you well know, that rules out everybody probably but your mother-in-law. Everybody needs the gospel. The pretty good, but still not perfect. Well, who else? Well, thirdly, those that only want reward. Notice verse 17 that Paul disputed also with those that were in the market. So now he's not speaking with religious Jews that are in the synagogue. Now he's not looking at devout people that are just looking for answers and they're fed up with all the immorality of their society. But these are just average citizens, people that just really don't think too much about God. What they're most interested in is financial affairs. The, these are people that have the God of materialism. And we might play a, do a little play on words here. These are people that are in the market. In other words, their hope is in the stock market and in the bond market, the insurance markets, the investment markets. So their God is the dollar. And they don't pay much attention to whether things are moral or immoral. They just go with the flow because immorality to them is anything that affects their pocketbook. Their God is the dollar. So I heard, I think, someone say the other day, pull out a dollar, and it says, in God we trust. And there, <laughs> that's their God, in God we trust, the dollar. Now, I'm going to say something at this point, and, and, and this, you know, maybe some might not like this, but I want to stop for just a second to talk about those who are saved, people that have heard the gospel, people have believed, but what they've done is to set up another God in their lives. And what they've done is to build an altar. And on this altar is the image of their pocketbook. And so their big thing is not where is America going morally? What's the problems with us morally? Their problem is where are we going economically? And so they ignore Issues like murder of unborn babies. They ignore issues like gay rights and same-sex marriages. And Christians vote to put in power those that have a history of every moral decadence that you can think of. And that's because their pocketbooks have been affected. And so you, you say shame on that because they have reward as their God. So they vote for murder, the destruction of the biblical family unit and all of that. And I'm not giving you a political speech. That's that's a biblical speech, and, and if you have an argument against that, come talk to me later. The problem is, though, folks, Americans have done this for so long that now we have no choices. doesn't matter which party you go to. People have just accepted all of this, and now you just, you, you, your only choice is to vote for somebody who, who's in favor of all of this junk, all this immorality. We did it to ourselves. But let me go on here. Uh, there are people that are not just, or, or, you know, they're interested in the stock market, 
and, and there are those people. But we're also witnessing something else right now, and that's the rise of a pseudo-church in America, and their fundamental doctrine is materialism. There's no gospel in it. There's no warnings about hell. There's no preaching about man's sinfulness. There's no preaching about repentance. There's nothing that says that we have to stand before a righteous God, but they have a religion, and it's a religion of self-satisfaction, self-esteem, self-love, but never anything about self-sacrifice. This is the religion of me, 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 me. And you know what I'm talking about because I, I mention it often. And the reason I mention it often, because you encounter this every day. It, this is one of the biggest threats to the real gospel of Jesus Christ that we have in America today. And you know what it is. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's the gospel of Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Kenneth Copeland, and all of that bunch. There is no gospel of Jesus Christ in it. It's a gospel of materialism that never says anything about following Jesus and taking up a cross of self-sacrifice. It says nothing about giving up anything for Christ. It never accepts any suffering for the cause of Christ. It does not believe what Paul said in the book of Philippians, for not only is it given to you to believe in Christ, or in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. And they cross that verse out of the Bible. Joel Osteen's idea of godliness is godliness is equivalent to your personal happiness. And so it's a gospel of you. It's not about honoring God. It's not about glorifying him. It's a gospel about glorifying whatever you desire. So is there a gospel in somebody like Osteen's ministry? Well, I, I read this quote I found a few, a few years ago. I was... Um, looking up some reviews of Joel Osteen's book. The, the, I think it was the first one that he wrote. I believe it was the first one. It was Your Best Life Now, if I recall. I don't know. I don't read Joel Osteen. So those of you that know it better than I do, you, you may recognize this. But a reviewer, you know, wrote about what, about after reading a Christian man, after reading Joel Osteen's book, and he says this. In closing my review, I want to say, oh, I nearly forgot. Joel Osteen does share the plan of salvation with the readers of this book. The reason I nearly forgot, because it seems Osteen nearly forgot too. His gospel presentation, as it might be loosely defined by some, spans one half of one page and is neatly tucked on the very last page of the book after the end notes. It's not even given the courtesy of a page number in the table of contents. Additionally, Osteen's gospel presentation contains no scripture references, no indication of who Jesus Christ is, no mention of his death on the cross or the necessity of his death in the place of guilty sinners, no teaching about the importance of Christ's sinless life, nothing about his resurrection from the dead, no reference to the grace of God, and no plea for the reader to respond by trusting in Christ's work. All of those things that are missing is the gospel. All of those things, that's the gospel. People who believe this stuff need the gospel of Christ because their gospel is a cursed gospel. It's exactly what Paul is talking about or one of the things that he's talking about in Galatians 1 where he says, if anybody comes to you with any other gospel than we preach, let that person be accursed. Now, if you listen to... I don't think anybody here does, but if you listen to it, read that kind of junk, don't waste your time with it. That's not the gospel of Christ. It's not going to help you. This is for people that are interested in the rewards of materialism, and there, are plenty, there were plenty of people like that in Athens, 
and plenty of people like this in America today. Fourthly, who needs the gospel? Those who love revelry instead of God. And verse 18, there's another group of people here that are called the Epicureans. And these are what you call the pure pleasure seekers in life. At the time of the Apostle Paul, ancient Greece was influenced by two main schools of philosophy, two main schools of thought. And one of those, or I should say both of those, those are the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans is who I want to talk about now. These are people that followed a man by the name of Epicurus who lived about 300 years before Christ. Paul mentions their philosophy and speaks about it negatively in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And those of you, everybody should be familiar with 1 Corinthians 15. That's the great resurrection chapter. And Paul is arguing there that if there is no resurrection, then we're lost. We're still in our sins. And he says, if, that's, if, that's, if this life is all there is, then we just eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. That's the exact philosophy of the Epicureans. Let's live it up now because there is no tomorrow. So Epicurus was someone who believed that the world happened by chance or it happened by accident, that there really isn't a god or gods. And if there are, then these gods or god are remote from this. They're not really interested in the affairs of men. So what's left to man to discover truth. It's, it's left to him to enjoy the pleasures of life because there is nothing after death. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no reward, there's no punishment. You just die and that's the end of it. Well, where have you ever heard that before? Is that, is that something you hear today? Well, go to any public school in America, go to any university, college, university, from from kindergarten to the PhD programs, this is exactly what they hear. It's evolution. That's what's taught. And folks, that is a godless system. You can't put evolution and God together. Not the Bible, not the God of the Bible. Those are two things that do not mix. Notwithstanding, if you read the Press Democrat, that's really good on theological matters. But if you read that yesterday, they had an article in there where the Southern Baptists had begun a dialogue with people that... Uh, believe in evolution, yet they claim to be Christians as well. Now, I'm not saying they're accepting of it yet, but they've opened the dialogue with that. And as and, and Al Mohler, bless his heart, he said, you can't put those two things together. You can't have, you can't have a God of the Bible and evolution at the same time. They don't work together. So evolution, that, that's really the heart and soul of Epicurean philosophy. Look at verse 18 in our text. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And you see there, it says strange gods. That actually means wild, outlandish, and unbelievable. Now, these are people, the Greeks that he's talking to are people that have a God for everything known to man, from himself to his emotions. They made gods of man's feelings, every kind of concoction that you can think of. These people have a God for it, and they look at Paul and said, Paul, what you're saying is totally outlandish. I mean, that is just totally unbelievable that you could say something like that. So what about the evolutionist? Well, he believes that Everything started with a speck of dust in the middle of nothing that exploded into everything. And here this complex organism that we call man came out of this chaos 
and man's the product of that. And we say, why do people have such low self-esteem? Well, evolution will help, doesn't it? I mean, we thought it was preaching on total depravity that gave people low self-esteem. But you tell somebody they came from a monkey, monkey, that's kind of hard to lift them up with something that kind of a doctrine. But these evolutionists, they believe this even though their own scientific evidence says that this thing can never happen, that there are no systems that tend to order. They always tend to chaos. So you can't have some random, randomly explosion here that, that comes to all the order that we have in the universe. And you know why they don't believe it, that, that, or why they believe in evolution, why they think it has to be that way? Because to believe anything else, they have to admit to a God who created it all, which means he's greater than us in will and power. And if he is, that means we have to submit to him. And they don't want to submit to him. They don't want to admit there's any higher authority than us. So which is stranger? Which is more fantastic and unbelievable? The evolutionist accepts by his faith something that's far harder to believe than what we accept by our faith. So America's on the same path as these Greeks. Vain philosophy led the Greeks into moral decadence and finally to their downfall, and America's not two steps behind that. So America says, let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry. Anything goes, nothing's really wrong with us, let's just live it up for tomorrow we die. That's the philosophy that you hear out here in all of our neighborhoods. And the last part of it is absolutely right. Tomorrow they die. And you know what goes with it? Everlasting death. Death in the fires of hell. And then when that happens, you know what people will wish? They're going to wish there was nothing beyond the grave. But there is something. And they say, well, I don't believe that. I'll take my chances with that. I'll have my fun now. And they act like this whole thing is a gamble. There's no gamble in this. There's certainty to this. The outcome is inevitable. No gamble to it. They die, and they spend eternity in the fires of hell. So who needs the gospel? People that think that this life is all there is. Then fifthly, who needs the gospel? Well, this would be those who rationalize God. Now, this is the other side of the philosophical world at the time of the Apostle Paul, and these are the Stoics. They're people who are followers of Zeno, and he lived about the same time as Epicurus. And his basic teachings are pantheism and fatalism. Pantheism is the belief of the New Age movement today, so that's not really new. It's very old, goes all the way back many, many years before our time, and even before Jesus' time, goes way back. So... This is one of the ideas of the Greeks, that they believe, some of them believed, uh, uh, there's a fair amount of them that the world's divided into these people, that God is everything and everything is God. What pantheism says, that there isn't a single God or gods, but that God is in everything or God is everything. So God is universe or God is the nature or God is nature. And what do you see? Do, you ha- do we have any, anybody around us that worships nature? Do, does anybody we know? Sebast- I think Sebastopol, Sebastopol. People that worship nature and walk around with tinfoil on their head and everything else. I mean, they're trying to be one with nature. These are people that believed in fatalism. There is no one who controls anything. There is no good or evil. Everything happens because it happens. You know, I've heard some people say that people who believe in predestination like us believe in fatalism. That's somebody that has no idea what predestination is. 
Predestination and fatalism are not the same thing. You are utterly confused if you think that because fatalism depends upon no one. There's no design. There is no purpose. Everything happens by random chaotic occurrences. Uh, We need to be glad that there is a God of plan and purpose, that there's a God who determined a way that we can be saved, and therefore he sent Christ into the world to die for our sins. But these people, they don't believe in that. They finally come to rationalizing everything. And you know where rationalization leads you? Rationalization finally leads to self-sufficiency, that the only one that can help me is me. And so I consume myself with self-control and with discipline. Now, the Epicureans on one side, they let everything hang out. And then the Stoics on the other side are very reserved and and ascetic. They're, They're really trying to make something of themselves. But that rationalism leads to atheism. I am my own God. I'm the master of my fate. And really, when you analyze this, this is really the same gospel as Osteen and Schuler. They're going to fit into these categories as well because this is what it's all about. Self-help. Look what I can do. How I can lift myself up. Think good thoughts. Do good things. Uh, I'm the one who has to, who can really make a difference in my life. Same philosophy. This is the philosophy of William Ernest Henley who was a an atheist, and wrote his confession of atheism, of his atheism in a poem that was called Invictus. And this is what he wrote. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Invictus is a Latin word that means unconquered. And so what Henley was doing was shaking his fist in the face of God and saying it doesn't matter what you say, God. It doesn't matter what you talk about when you talk about punishment. It doesn't matter what you say you're going to inflict upon the unjust. I am the one who's the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And, of course, he's been dead for some time, and he found out who the master of his soul is. And one day he'll stand before God, and, and God will say, William Ernest Henley, come to the bar. And there, I'm, I'm not talking about a bar. I'm, you know, I'm talking about a judgment bar. William Ernest Henley, come to the bar. And there, all of his sins are going to be judged. No excuses, no arguments. The scripture says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. Now, this, this is not a verse about salvation, that your works get you to heaven. This is about everybody that's in hell being called up, and they're judged according to the amount of sin that they've committed. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So who needs the gospel? These are people that need the gospel. Hell's gaping wide open to receive them unless they believe and are saved. There's no hope for them without that. So the hell that they don't believe exists is the place that they're going to be. So these are the kinds of people that Paul met in Athens, and they're all around us today. Who needs the gospel? Every last person on the face of earth needs the gospel. Now, I want you to notice, though, one last group, and we didn't really get far enough in our reading to get there, but go down to verse number 32 in Acts 17. Acts 17, 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, 
we will hear thee again of this matter. Now, in the previous verses, Paul had talked about, talked about the judgment of God. And he said that God has confirmed this by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, there, there is God's seal of approval upon the work of Christ. And the fact that God raised him from the dead was to say that this same person raised from the dead is the one who will judge you. God confirmed all that with the resurrection. So when they heard about the resurrection, some of them mocked, and some of them said, bring him back another time, we'll hear him again. But there are others, if you look at verse number 33. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some believed. And there's our sixth group. Who needs the gospel? People that want a relationship with God. People that want a true relationship with God. Some people believed. And the only way that you have a relationship with God is to believe the message that Paul preached, to trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior. Now, as you well know, there are plenty of people who say they want a relationship with God but what they really want is a God who fits their relationships. And so that's how we get churches that support a gay lifestyle. That's how we get an entertainment gospel. That's how that every bug that crawls can be called a Christian. Just like I preached about this morning, I mean, there are so many people that do not read Scripture and take it for what it says about what Christ did. So what they've done is they've made up their own Jesus. And as far as God is concerned, he calls that Christless Christianity. Folks, there's only one God. He's found in the pages of the Bible. He's the one true living God that preached about. He came to this earth 2,000 years ago. He was born of the Virgin Mary. 33 years he lived on this earth, and he lived a perfect life. He went to the cross at his own appointed time. When the time was right, nobody took him, nobody killed him. He gave up himself, and he went to the cross and he gave his life willingly. And on the, in those torturous hours that he spent on the cross, the Bible teaches that he paid for our sins there. Then he died. They buried him. Three days later, he came out of the gro- grave. And he did all of this to save people, not to save good people because there aren't any. He died to save sinners just like you and me. And the world is full of them out there. All people need this. All kindreds, all races, all tribes, all classes. Everybody needs the gospel of Christ. Now the question for us is will we give it to them? We have what people so desperately need. And so when you run across people with all these different philosophies, even from the very, or I should say from the very religious right down to the ones who think this life is all there is and they're living it up and just trying to have a good time. All of them and everybody in between needs what we have. And you're going to meet this variety of people and you have to be able to give them the truth of the gospel of Christ, the real Jesus found in the pages of the Bible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you, Lord, for what we've been able to look at in these scriptures tonight. And we do encounter all of these different kinds of people. We, ne- we never know sometimes. what the, We just don't know what the next person we talk to is going to believe or what strange ideas that they have about who God is and what their responsibility is to God. So, Lord, help us to give them this message that's in the Word and 
of course, we depend upon the Holy Spirit to energize that word that we give and to make it effectual in their hearts. But before that can ever happen, they have to hear about it. People need to know it. And help us be the ones that sow the seeds of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.